Mr. Rainwater. Hey there, Joe. Tonight we made we're, it. We're talking about rewrites. Yeah, we made it after a slew of technical <laughs> difficulties. Um, tonight we're talking about rewrites, which is right. That's that's what you messaged me with, right? Yeah, the art of the redraft. Okay. Um, you call it redraft. What? I call it rewrite, but it's what? yeah. You know, I take it in your line of work, you have to to turn the pencil over and re- erase a, a, every now and then, right? Is that is that typically something that happens? Well, what inspired that one for me is that um, right now I'm writing the next story I want to do after Trailer Park Warlock. So, like, I spent the last two weeks writing season five of Trailer Park Warlock. I actually hit a point where I was like, I need to start drawing. Like, I just need to go, you know, because I had gotten to the point where I know exactly where the momentum of all this is going, it just needs to get done. Yep. You know? Yep. Uh, but for this other story that I'm working on, which is what I'm going to follow up after Trailer Park Warlock, I got about 25 pages into writing it. Wow. And I hit a point where I was like, I don't know if this is exactly what I want to do. I need to take a step back and I need to think about it mm. because it's a different it's a it's different from trailer park warlock it has different sort of attitudes towards humor um it has different focus points it's more focused on personal like character interaction and there's a lot of characters in trailer park warlock and there's plenty of interaction but it's very plot heavy Mm. and this is like completely different and i like the direction that it's going but it's so different i was like I had a moment where I, I, I took a step back and I thought to myself, I need a, I may need to do a redraft of this because it just do, it doesn't have enough of the humor that I would want for it. It feels a little more serious than I want. So maybe I just need to take two steps back, come back to it in a little bit and reassess. It's interesting and, that you, you bring that, aspect up on rewrites because that's really what a rewrite needs is distance yeah, yeah it really in, does in, in my experience and i'm that is my i don't know what the word is but like it, it, is coda the right word not sure. like child of a death adult but like not no i know what you mean mantra like but the the protocol <laughs> yeah <laughs> like i don't know what it is i don't know what the right word is and I, i'm ashamed to say that as a writer but um no, like that, like that's the one writing lesson that I've learned that I that has not changed in any way whatsoever since I've learned it, which is writing is rewriting. And yeah, absolutely. I, there's I, I can't say that there isn't because you know there's exceptions to every rule, but for the most part, anybody who says that they write a first draft and then they're done is probably just full shit and trying to hang their hat like they're some god. When Unless you're doing all the rewriting, like, right then and there, you know? Like, I do a lot of rewriting for Trailer Park Warlock as I'm drawing pages mm. and as I'm going through. So I'll have the thumbnail set up, right? Yep. That'll be my first draft. And then as I'm drawing every page, I don't draw all my pages all in one day. I draw them over the course of six to seven days. So I'll start a page. I'll start drawing it, and I may hit a point where I say to myself, okay, I need to readjust some things here and there. 
I need to look back on where the story's going here. And maybe I need, maybe this panel doesn't need to be a close up. Maybe I actually need to pull out more and show more of the environment, mm -hmm. show more information for the reader so that I can have more of this information to give later on in the story. And that's just like an example of sort of what it means to rewrite as I go along. Um, in, I, it doesn't make sense to me, people who like, who, who say totally first draft everything, you know, there's no way. Yeah. <laughs> there's, well, it's just, it doesn't seem possible to me. Well, rewriting is like part of the process. It'd be like you're sculpting something like you're chipping away or something from marble and you hit a bunch of things or whatever. And then you just go, I'm done, but you don't go in there and fine tune details or something. You know what I mean? Like it yeah. would just be a very angular type thing, which I mean, I guess if that's what you're going for, great. But for the rest of us, it's like, oh, no, the details are really kind of what sell things. So to me, when I see someone say that they've written something once and they haven't rewrite, I usually assume that you're just full of shit. They're a blowhard trying to, you know, blow yeah. themselves up bigger than they are. Because in my experience, I don't technically I don't I don't typically know what I'm writing until after it's written and I can step back oh, from yeah. it from a while. So like. It's odd that you pitched this idea and the thing for me because I'm doing a rewrite on Haunted right now because despite all the accolades and the appraise that I've gotten from people who've read it, I have not yet been happy with it. And the reason that I haven't been happy with it is the other thing that I've been humping a lot lately in our podcast, which is thematic premise. What is this story about? Not necessarily what's the plot. The plot I've had nailed down for years right? It's, it's simple. It's very easy. It's fun. I've got the great set pieces. I've got some fun characters and all that kind of stuff, twists and turns and scares and all that kind of stuff's there. Everything that's, that's needed to make a horror movie is there. But for me, it's never been personally fulfilling because I wasn't sure what I was writing about. And it wasn't until I was able to come back to it and reread it after months where I hadn't looked at it at all. And for me to realize what my subconscious was planting seeds throughout. And I could see strings that were all pointing to the same thing, just saying, Hey, can you tie us together? And yeah. then, then, then you can lift this. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. the grocery bags, like all the stuff is in there. You got all the groceries you need, but to get it in the house, to get it home, you gotta, you gotta wrap them all together so you can hold them and get them in. I guess that's a yeah. great, the great analogy sure. to, uh, to bring it home. <laughs> And finally I saw it and then I was able to just uh, in the past day or two, I was able to finally solidify what that thematic premise is. So yeah. now I'm, I've just got the, the, the scene taken care of where I, I've stated it. Right. But now I need to go back through and just make sure it's echoing in harmony throughout the remaining of the scene. So every time I look at the next scene or sequence, I'm asking myself, where is the thematic premise being debated here? Not necessarily so overtly that it's like right there in dialogue beating you over the sure. head, but the sure. actions and choices that my characters are making, are they illustrating different points about that premise? Are they making choices that d demonstrate this? Which way are we going? Like, you know what I mean? Like, so like there's yeah. monsters and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. But am I taking full potential of my premise, my thematic premise and executing yeah. it here? Because by the time I get to the end frame, 
That's what's going to matter. Not all the the plot and the set pieces and the funny lines of dialogue and this and that. No. What's going to matter is did I prove my point or did I not? Did I, you know what I mean? Like, and that's what's going to be fulfilling for me as an artist. So now I've got that and I've suddenly become really excited about it. The problem for me with rewriting is when I rewrite, I, everything, it's uh, the butterfly effect. So if I change one thing, I know that's going to echo on down the script where it's like, oh, I've rewritten this dialogue. So now I don't explain that here and I got to explain it later. And there's too much going on to explain it during that. Like I I don't have time, so I got to find another place to do it. And that becomes like a, a monstrous task where it's like I'm rewriting the entire script, almost like a page one rewrite. So I've gotten to the point now where today I had three different drafts open at the same exact time on my computer screen. And I was literally transplanting scenes from older drafts that still worked into the the current draft. And then in the other page, I was writing the next scene to make sure or a scene that didn't. So that if the next scene didn't fit, I was rewriting it on another one and then transplanting that over and picking and choosing from two different scripts to make the ultimate one, if you will. And it's been a really interesting process because I've never rewritten like that before. It's either been a page one rewrite or I just go through tweaking, if that makes any Uh, sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's been a kind of an eye-opener for me. And I think one of the biggest things that we need to really discuss is how easy it is to fall down the rabbit hole of the rewrite because I can become obsessive about, like I said, changing everything to match up to other things where... I think you'll agree with me. Distance is the perspective that every artist needs from what they're doing, whether it's a day or three months, the the distance is what's going to really allow you to observe your own work and highlight what's working and what's not. Yeah. Part of the danger of that too is uh, after building a certain amount of distance, I also had moments where I said to myself, I could just write a whole other different story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and that gets a little dangerous because then it's, it, 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 it becomes this repeating process of, well, at some point I'm going to have to do redrafts of the new story too, you know? Yeah. And then that become, because there's a million different kinds of stories I could write. So I look at it, uh, I'm trying to look at it right now as, okay, just take all the time you need. You have plenty of time. Mm. You don't have to have this. You don't have to have like a script ready tomorrow. You've got months. So just think about it. Think about, cause in this first draft, what I was able to peg down were characters, mm. the, uh, like the environment, the world. Yep. And I, I didn't have a good thematic premise figured out yet. I had a lot of scenes figured out, which is a good start. Yeah. Right. That's how it always starts. It always starts with, I got a couple of great set pieces or, you yeah. know, jokes or something like that. And then it's yeah, like, and there were a lot of good jokes. And then as I started to string everything together, it seemed to me that the story just felt weird. Hmm. And so, <laughs> which is different from the momentum that I've been running on with trailer park warlock, where everything always clicks and feels right. 
but it's because I already have so much momentum built up for it. And this is very different because it is taking place in the same world. It's like after the events of the first story, but it's very different characters. It has very different, um, it's like a different point in time. Mm. So I know this much, which is like trailer park warlock takes place in the late nineties, like the transition from the late nineties to 2000 in terms of overall attitudes and whatever. Yeah. Um, this new story takes place around 2012 and 2013 around those. Okay. That's a very different attitude. Oh, absolutely. How people think, how people interact with each other and requires completely different retooling of like thinking about humor, like the same kind. I'm not going to be able to use the same kind of jokes that I can use in trailer park warlock in this. I have to totally retune the way that I think about that's scary writing everything. Yeah, it's really weird because I think that I think though that it's going to be crucial to establishing the overall feel of the story because if it felt just like Trailer Park Warlock, then why not just keep doing Trailer Park Warlock? Right, and it would be disingenuous to the idea of this being at a later time and in a later like with characters who have grown up and are now older and have totally different perspectives from what they had previously. That's part of the, that's part of what's very weird about something about like star Wars, where literally nothing's changed from the end of the first trilogy to the new trilogy. Mm. It's like, they just entered the exact same star Wars. And it was 30 years later, not 10. Right. Yeah. Right. Like something should change. Like, not just like the design of the droid. That's not enough to like, so to me, I'm thinking very deeply about that because I also want the humor to reflect that the time that it's in, I want it to reflect the, like the attitudes of the people of that time, because even 2012 to now to today are two very different. Absolutely. Periods. Yes. In, in such that I have to think completely differently about, I have to remember what 2011 was like. I don't really remember what 2011, 2012 was like. <laughs> uh, don't look at me. I was making a movie. Right? I was burnt out to shit. <laughs> which is funny because I have such a distinct nostalgia and memory of the late 90s. And that's what that's going to be another challenge for me is to tune in, tune into that period and pull it out and really put it into the story in such a way that it reflects that and in such a way that it makes its own universe. It's weird, but it's almost like at a, a certain age, you stop carpen- uh, stop compartmentalizing the, mm-hmm. the eras in which you live. And it all just feels like one. Like right now, if you ask me to compare now to 2012, I know in my mind that it's different now than it was then, but I could not give you examples of really how, you know what I mean? Sure. Like it, it's just mind blowing. But if you wanted me to compare now to, to early 2000s, late 90s. Oh, I could give you a slew of different things, but my brain is just like, no, everything is now. <laughs> it's just, that's the way it is. That's the way it's been for a while. And that's the way it's going to stay. I feel, I, I feel like I want to call it like old man syndrome where it's like back in my day, yeah. where you know what I mean? And that's kind of the mindset that really is jumping at me where it's like, I wonder if our brains just stop observing change because we're like, ah, eh, I don't feel like well, watching. It is 
it is easy to get set in like your ways after a certain age, right? Yeah. Especially like after 30, I, I, I think mm. a lot of people after 30 really start to solidify their identity and start to really solidify their aims. That's especially a period in time where a lot of people, um, like cement into a career. And so that becomes a really big part of their identity or they get married, they have kids, all those things really cement an identity. Um, I <laughs> like 2012 at that point I was about 26. So I was very free floaty, you know, in my sure. identity and I'm trying to, and that's what I'm thinking a lot about as I go back to redress is I'm thinking about, you know, what did I experience and what did I think and what did I, what did I think was funny at the time? And what were the observations that I made at that time that really stuck out? And that was, that was definitely one of those moments when you had the bigger shift into digital stuff. You had the bigger shift in the social media. Yeah. Like it was there, right? It was there probably 2004 onward. But the big shifts didn't happen until I'd say around 2011, 2012. That's when dating apps really became a, a huge thing. Everybody sure. was talking about how dating apps were totally revolutionizing the way people meet each other and all that other stuff. Um, so that's something that's going to refigure into my next draft, right? And I have to think more about the locale that it's set in because it is a more rural. It's it's a rural locale and it's not it's not like mountainous it's more like just tree a lot of trees and and uh dirt roads and stuff like that yeah so that's interesting you bring that up about the yeah. locale because it's almost like that's something else i've noticed about when i'm doing rewrites is that the first draft or so, or earlier drafts are always kind of like tunnel vision where I'm obsessed with one particular aspect, whether it be my main character or the plot or whatever it may have been. On rewrites, I start noticing subsequent things where I'm like, oh, there should be fog in this scene. Like, and you know what I mean? Like it starts kind of building itself out where it's like, oh, I'm neglecting atmosphere here. I'm neglecting transitions from scenes. I'm neglecting sound or how this is going to smell like all those different things start becoming apparent to you right no or am i right or wrong on that for sure for sure i mean for me that for me i start thinking about that when i'm drawing the page more specifically unless there's a very particular detail that i really like if there's a detail that i'm um fixated on I'll make sure that it's in the thumbnails that are that it's somewhere in the script. And it's usually some random. Oh, it's, it's not like, like a plot heavy. <laughs> it's, it's not a plot heavy thing. It's just, it's just one of those things where I really feel the need that there needs to be like a Bucky's reference in this panel <laughs> or so, you know, just things like sure. that. Cause it adds to the atmosphere. And it ends up, I mean, like when trailer park world, like it does end up adding to the atmosphere because then people start, replying in the comments threads of like, Oh, is that like a knockoff Bucky's <laughs> and all those things add, you know, all, all those little details add. Um, and sometimes those details turn into plot points, but nevertheless, um, I'm curious to know what is your turnaround time 
from the moment you write your script to the moment that it launches on Webtoon, what is uh, like your your time for for per? Because you don't you don't do the entire season in one sitting and then it just launches right. week by week, right? You you do it week by week. What's the what's the timetable for each so release? My, my timetable starts um, at the beginning of the season. I need to get at least twelve, uh, no, ten episodes done before I can release the season. Okay. And those th- those first ten episodes go a little slower because I have more time on my hands, and I usually those episodes tend to be longer too because I have more time to make them. Mm. And that will be anywhere between uh, eight to twelve days. But as the season, like as the season starts and the episodes are publishing every week, I need to get as close to seven days as possible, wow. like beginning to end one week. And so you can be fairly topical. I can, but it doesn't. I yeah, mean, I know it it's not relevant. But Warlock, yeah, but it's yeah, it's self-contained within its thing. I um, managed to be I managed to be topical sometimes in regards to things that I will stick in as like jokes or whatever here and there. But uh, well, it's actually interesting that you bring that up because there are plot points in season five of trailer park warlock that are reminiscent of some things that I watched when I recently saw moonfall. <laughs> I was, <like laughs> was going to ask you about that, but I was going to wait till we were off the air. A couple of redrafts. <laughs> <laughs> but I, when I was watching that movie, I was like, "Ah, oh, goddamn it!" They're kind of covering some similar ideas here. And during the movie, I was just thinking about like, how is it different from Trailer Park Warlock? And it's different in a lot of ways, but nevertheless, the, there's a central concept regarding the moon that I mean, we pull. I don't know. Me and Roland Emmerich basically pulled from the same deranged sources which is like paranormal radio you know so it it's never you know nevertheless there's going to be intersection right it, it happens um but it's going to feel topical i know because they're going to be people people are going to read season five and be like oh this is really similar to are you like making fun of moonfall <laughs> i'm not intentionally <laughs> but if it works out that way that's great well that's good that you at least you're doing a comedy where that can be you can get away with saying yeah it was a moonfall joke as opposed to oh he's ripping off moonfall which is something i'm paranoid about because one of the reasons why i abandoned haunted uh, a couple years ago was because there were several haunt horror movies coming out and in succession of one another and i was so paranoid that i was just going to get compared i was like oh i got beat to the gate you know i you know it's all about who gets there first and then i finally saw them and while some of them still kind of get talked about, they didn't really hit the way that I wanted to. But most importantly, when I watched them myself, I looked at them and go, oh, none of them are doing my concept. None. It's, you know what I mean? It's like the same setting. It's like, oh, this action thing takes place, you know, in the White House. Well, how many yeah. fucking action movies take place in the White House? A couple, you know, at least a handful. And, uh, they're all different to some extent. And it, so it, it started replacing my mind where I was like, okay, I'm not going to be the first. Might as well be the best. Like, I, you know, try and sure. do my best and hope for the best. Like, that's all you can do. Um, but I'm curious to know from you, from a rewrite perspective, do you think that your, your work is better 
when you have more time to work on it? Or do you think you're better with, uh, with less opportunity to rewrite? Like, you know, you have to be more tunnel vision. Do you think that's a benefit or do you think the rewrites are, are usually the stronger versions of what you're trying to accomplish? Usually my concern with rewrites are, is that I get, I second guess myself. I get that a lot. Yeah. That's my big problem. And I, and that's what can lead to like rewrite upon rewrite upon rewrite is when you start second guessing yourself. And that's why I started, that's why I, uh, I, I focus, I started to focus really heavily on the pace and momentum that gets built when it's just week to week, you know, like when you're that focused, you're not thinking about, you're not thinking too much about rewriting unless it's something really crucial. Mm. Unless it's like, oh, I, I left out something really important in this moment. And I, the, I've probably talked about this before. The only time I've ever, wasn't even necessarily a rewrite. It was like an added scene. The only time I ever added a scene was at the end of a particular episode in season three. And it was one of the last episodes. It was about, I think it was the la- um, third before the last episode. And it had concluded this major uh, story arc. And it had ended on a beat that a lot of readers were saying, this feels like it ends too suddenly. I'm not getting enough of something here. And so I added a whole scene. It was about 11 panels to just uh, to just give some sense that all the characters are acknowledging each other at the end of the story arc. And it's not just ending suddenly. And it made a big difference, right? Like it was worth the effort that was put into it. It added, it certainly added to what was needed. And I'm not really, I think I was so, I was in such a dead set pace that to me, I was like, this, this will just work. So in, in this particular case for the rewrite, well, I guess you could call, I guess you could call it a rewrite. Um, the viewers provided you with that perspective, the one that would probably have come with time if you had been able to right. take a step back and, and breathe for a minute and then reevaluate with a different perspective. Um, that's interesting to me. I don't have that luxury in filmmaking, unless well, I'm George Lucasing it, it's <laughs> in which weird... case it goes the other way. <laughs> yeah. It's a weird relationship because it is very, um, it is very back and forth and very immediate. In comics being what it is, it's enough of the turnaround time for it is enough that you could feasibly go back and make the changes even sometimes within within the same day, depending on what kind of changes you're asking for. Now, with like a movie or a video game or something like that, that's a whole other that's a whole other order, right, Of, of task. With movies, it requires. You got to get it right the first time or you're done. Like you have, it's one shot. That to me is so, um, so terrifying in the magnitude of it. And that makes sense to me why you, you have so many redrafts and rewrites because you've got to get it. You got to make sure. Yeah. 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 And, And that's even in the, in the studio world, they have come to the point where when they schedule out for production, they now automatically schedule like a month and a half, two months for reshoots because they know it's going to happen. 
So when they get through the editing process, they're like, oh, I wish we had this, blah, 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 blah. So instead of fighting and begging actors and actresses to come back, reshoot a scene or whatever like that, they already build it into the production schedule. So it's like, oh, no, no, I've got reshoots from this to that. And then if they don't need them, they don't need them. But if they do, they're already committed to that. So they can't commit to something else. In the indie world, which is where I'm operating, you don't have that luxury. You you know yeah. what I mean? Like you need to get it on the fucking day. Dude, um, I uh, I watched a documentary on uh, what the fuck is his name? Uh, Orson Welles, and mm. he had made this movie called um, The Other Side of the Wind. Yep. And the documentary is about the process about making that movie. And I had learned some things in that documentary that blew my mind, which was that Orson Welles like. He basically stitched together that movie over the course of years. Yeah. It would do, there would be scenes where he would do shot, like shoots for it years later. Yes. And I, it, it's not obvious in the footage that they were able to like edit together to make a movie out of, mm-hmm. but it's crazy to me. It's crazy to me that he was able to do that. And it probably, I, I mean, it says something, I guess, to his particular madness, right? That he was able to pull that off. Um, but anybody else, right? Like you're saying, for you as an indie, it's like you gotta. It needs to. This needs to happen in a very particular way. Well, and see, then that's something that I'm trying to a like. As I said, I'm redrafting, and then the next thing that I'm going to be doing is storyboarding, like making sure I've got all that kind of stuff figured yeah. out in my head. How it's going to go wrong? I'm going to do when the weather gets a little nicer. I'm going to be doing pre-light setups outside making sure everything happens the way I want it to, how I can move the camera, blah, 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 blah. Like I'm figuring out everything. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I am affording myself a luxury of is the beauty of modern technology. So back in the day, the idea of doing a green screen was something for like a special visual effect. Whereas, and it would cost like thousands, if not millions of dollars to do. Whereas now anybody on Twitch can just throw up an automatic <laughs> green screen behind them. Sure. And, you know what I mean? And change it, whatever. So what I'm going to do, and I haven't fully fleshed out this idea because obviously if uh, there's different shots, how the shots particularly work, it this idea won't apply. But for some things, if I get some kind of a static shot where an actors are talking at each other or whatever, and say I get into the edit and I'm like, man, I really wish I had this character saying that line here instead of having them ADR it, which is just saying an audio line and then holding on a camera, like on a, um, a character just silently staring at the other character. So you can't see them moving or whatever. Yeah. I'm going to, after every single shot, after every take that I do, I'm going to have the actor step out of frame and I'm going to roll camera for about 30 seconds to a minute on a blank plate behind them. And then if I come back to it, instead of having to go back to a location or redress something or whatever, I can just have the actor come back, stand in front of a green screen outside, have them say the line and then composite them back into the same thing. And yeah, it'll take a little bit of fluffing to make sure it it looks seamless, but I'll be able to get it back that way. And the other beauty of it is because I'm in an independent world and Chances are I'm not going to be able to pay everybody, probably the actors, um, up front to to be in the film. You have people who are very flaky, very flaky, especially actors. Um, 
So if I need to go back and composite like a new actor and like replace an actor halfway through the movie, at least I'll have <laughs> stuff to do it with already. Yeah. And I'll be one step ahead of the curve. But like th- that's the real game plan is figuring out ahead of time how you're going to approach it. So like that's I'm already planning the rewrite for the edit. You know what I'm saying? Like and that's the real the real important thing is figuring out ahead of time and planning to rewrite. And that's one of the things that I've doing, I'm doing now where it's like I've already got balls in the air that I'm juggling thinking about what the next script is going to be. And I'm eyeing, you know, film festivals or whatever that I'm go- or how I'm going to produce it. And I'm already thinking, well, OK, yeah, I can have this written by July, but I also need to, to schedule in some time for a rewrite because I'm going to need to do that. I'm going to need to do a second pass at least at least two passes. And in between that time, I'm going to need downtime to get perspective and refresh the ideas. I'll tell you something. Last night, you're going to kill me for this because I think this is one of your favorite (laughs) movies. I saw Casino for the first time. Okay. Have you seen Casino? It's been a while. Scorsese. I need to watch it again. Yeah. Um, So I was agonizing yesterday. I have a scene in the, again, the thematic premise. Uh, for haunted and I have to get across character relationships, character motivation, the thematic premise, plot motivation or uh, plot points all within one scene that that's like early on. And I rewrote the scene and it came out to seven pages. And that's like a huge no, no in all kind of screenwriting. <laughs> it's like scenes need to be two pages at best three to four pages if you're really really got something important going on seven pages is unheard of and i agonized for this hours hours trying to rewrite trying to figure out what to cut i was sending the script uh the scene to, to friends going like what out of this can be removed from this scene? Not necessarily from the script, but yeah. doesn't need to be in this particular scene. And people were like, I don't know. It all flows pretty well. Like, I'm like, yeah, but it's it's too long. It's too long. Finally, I was like, all right, I'm done for the day. I put on Casino. The first 30 to 40 minutes of that movie, it's a three-hour <laughs> movie. 30 to 40 minutes of that movie is a montage of exposition with Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro overlaying voiceover for 30 minutes straight straight (laughs) it's one giant fucking montage scene for 30 minutes to which i looked at this and i'm observing i'm like fuck it i'm keeping my seven minute scene in the movie it's like you can break the rules if you if you break them well enough right or you can just break break them yeah as long as something's happening yeah and like i the one thing that i did take away was i needed I needed an added, I can't just have two characters stand there talking to each other for seven minutes. That's just not enough. So I I was able to. (laughs) It's funny because Moonfall does that. (laughs) Moonfall does a seven, (laughs) felt like seven hour, but like a seven minute, like full exposition of whatever, everything that's been going on type scene. The kind of thing, like what you're saying, where if you don't do it correctly, you totally blow the whole thing, which they did because it was. It was let me let me totally decelerate all the momentum of this story and tell you the billion year saga of the planet Earth, you know? Yeah. And that it it's totally a killer on storytelling because once you come back to 
once you come back to where you were in the present, suddenly you have to remember everything that's going on. Suddenly you have to get back to what you're doing. They just did it incorrectly because another way you could have done something like that is to have bits of exposition have a, happen more over the course of the story. There are ways of doing that. Perhaps one of the characters is getting random downloads from the Akashic Records or whatever the fuck, and you start to stitch all that together instead of, hey, you know, why don't we just sit <laughs> down for seven minutes and I tell you a totally related, but not that, it, you know... Yeah, not that interesting story. Although I'm, I've totally committed that sin too. Well, and and one of my favorite things that helped me kind of get through this was my good old friend Blake Snyder, the Save the Cat books, because mm -hmm. he goes into things other than just the story structure and his revised genre things. And there's something that he has a not so much a rule but a guideline or like a tip, um, called the Pope in the Pool, which is. There's a, a, a movie that I think he wrote or helped write or something like that. And I don't know if it actually came to fruition, but it was about a it was a thriller. It was an a, assassination attempt on the Pope. And that was like okay. the, the basis of the movie. Yeah. And they needed to have like a scene in the beginning of the movie with a bunch of exposition about, you know, what was going on. And he laid out the Pope in the pool and he was like, well, instead of just having these people talking about what's going on in a room he's like they literally had the pope in the pool swimming laps while this discussion was happening where the audience would just be like wait a minute the vatican has a pool like and, <laughs> that makes yeah that's a totally good idea and it was like oh and not only is the there a pool in the vatican but the pope's not in his pope gear he's in a bathing suit like i don't see the pope like this ever like this is out of so yeah. you have all this exposition going on but you also have something else going on within the scene then he talked about this movie that he wrote called Drips, which I really wish that they had made, but apparently not, I don't think, about two plumbers who get uh, wrangled into an oil heist at, in a city or something where they're going to flush oil through the sewage pipes and out to like a big tanker at the end of the thing. Uh, but anyway, he was talking about how the bad guy had lured the, the plumbers to his house and he was laying out his grand evil plan to them. And it was like, oh, this is kind of flat and boring. So yeah. he had the the plumbers before the scene drink ha having like an iced tea drinking contest to impress some girl. And by the time they got in front of the big the evil boss laying out his plan, he's talking about pipes and flowing things. And they both have to piss like like you wouldn't believe. And it was one of those things where it's like, oh, you know, we'll have a fountain going off outside the window and we'll have sprinklers. And, you know, he's talking about pipelines and floodage and stuff. And these people are just trying to hold in their piss. And he's talking about that and he's like, oh, that's a great way to get through an exposition scene is you have some kind of underlying thing. So, I mean, my only issue with the way that I solved my exposition problem was that yeah. I'm writing a horror movie and I didn't put scary things in as a thing. It's more uh, it's it's within the horror line. I'm I'm for the longest time I resisted the idea of TNA in my horror movie I was, and, and part of it's because I'm a prude director and I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to have to ask a woman to be sure. scantily clad in a film. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but at the same time, it actually works within the plot of this particular thing. It's not a sexual version of what's going on, but the character has to change clothes and sure. she's in a hurry and she's in the middle of a discussion where there's a time, there's a ticking clock going on. 
And so to to not have her on screen changing and, you know, in her underwear or whatever is sure. kind of a violation. But at the same time, it's going to check off. You know, all the stupid people who need that nudity in a horror movie for By them the to way, consider it a horror I would, movie. I would say that was a one of the bigger uh, directorial differences between Scream 3 and Scream 4 is there was like way more like they upped the like scantily clad women um, scenes like five times. I don't know Did if you they? noticed that in three between three and four. So four oh. in four. Oh, oh. To all the other ones before that, right? Yes, because um, Olivia gets butchered in her underwear. Ah, that's right. That's right. She's in the bla the, the yellow bra and panties when she gets murdered. Um, oh, absolutely. And before that, in one, two, three, there's barely anything you barely right. see. And then suddenly in four, they're like, I, I wonder if it was because they were competing with all the other horror movies at the time, and that was like part of the choice. I don't know. Anyway, total tangent. But I wanted to get back to one other thing in regards to um, in regards to exposition. So if you're going to do exposition, I know we're talking about redrafts, but this inevitably becomes part of anybody's rewriting process. It's all part of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, If you're going to do exposition, figure out how you can turn that exposition into a story where you have the characters actually involved in the scene so so for example there were three episodes that were basically exposition like a very big explanatory it was meant to explain the relationship between two characters in trailer park warlock so set and horus who are two gods in the universe that are at each other's throat and i could either just have you know, Jake Baker be sat down and told the story and you just read a bunch of word balloons and then you get the story or you actually show the interactions and have it play out a la, you know, a story within a story, a movie within a movie, et cetera, et cetera. And that was what I chose was to have the story within the story so that you're not just sitting there taking in a bunch of words. You're actually... You're actually like involved on the le- like on the floor level, and and you're not you're not bored. <laughs> I mean, basically, yeah. Um, and that's the problem with a lot of exposition. And going back to thinking, I'm going to be thinking about Moonfall for a while because <laughs> here's the thing about Moonfall. Um, Moonfall felt like watching a '50s B movie in a in a modern theater experience so on a certain level it put a grin on my face because it's like i can't believe i'm watching the movie this stupid (laughs) but on another level um there were so many mistakes made that you could have just totally fixed by just taking another second with the script and actually paying attention to how all these characters fit together None of the characters fit together. I don't even know. <laughs> At the end of the movie, I'm just like, why Why do we even have all these characters? What do they even mean to each other? It's just things happening. It's the moon showing up and wrecking yeah. shit, you know? Um, and it ultimately feels like that was what the movie was entirely about, is let's just do a bunch of special effects scenes with the moon. Yeah. that. I, as soon as I saw Roland Emmerich, that was like, oh, that's <laughs> right. where that is. <laughs> right. 
What do you mean we need characters in a plot? No, no, no. Well, also, Things Roland go Emmerich boom. Has, uh, like, it's very similar to how Red Letter Media, like, uh, had pointed out how Michael Bay did all the exact same beats and scenes to, in all the Transformers movies. Roland Emmerich has the exact same thing where if you've watched Independence Day, you've watched all these disaster films. Yeah. There's a scene where everybody is gathered around watching something on a TV screen of the news reporting what's happening. There's a scene where everybody's running to their car and trying to, you know, get get out of danger. Yep. Uh, there's the scene of something exploding behind the heroes as they fly out of the big the big thing. Yep. <laughs> um, and you know what? I've always had a theory as to why Independence Day was the one that worked and the rest of them were not. And yeah, you can say that there's charisma on behalf of the cast of um, Independence Day. They're, yeah, they're, they're very, very charming. Good cast. They're yeah. charming as fuck. Like, it doesn't matter what they're saying. You enjoy watching the performances. Yeah. But you have that, but you also have very practically done effects. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's some computer generated stuff going on in there. There's no doubt about it. But a lot of stuff that they had in there was done in camera. Like they, oh, even Roland the explosions Emmerich. and stuff like that, they did in fish tanks, like upside down. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and it works. Roland Emmerich, before he got too much into CGI, is actually pretty, I love Stargate. It's a kind of a cheesy movie, but it it still works to me this day because it's, everything feels, feels very, uh, like you're saying with the with the practical effects, it just feels very it feels more believable, right? Than yeah. surprisingly, even than the the very high end special effects that take place in Moonfall. It, after a while, it just feels like oh, everybody's on a green screen stage and just reacting to things that aren't there, you know? Yeah. But were, were you going to say more in regards to Independence Day? No, that was basically all that there yeah. is that that sells that movie. Because I love charming. that movie. I mean, <laughs> oh, absolutely, me too. It's a year watch. It's a yearly watch for me because the, again, the cast is just naturally good. You got Jeff Goldblum and uh, Will Smith and uh, Bill Pullman, but then you also have Vivica A. Fox and um, well, I don't know the name of the other uh, female characters. But they are all wonderful actors and actresses. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like just in general, like. Uh, I don't know what the uh, Robert Loggia, the guy who plays the general, the grumpy yeah. old general, yeah. <laughs> fucking perfect. Like he's, you know what I mean? Like he, he's not trying to be anything other than what he's great at in this fucking thing, which is just angry the entire time. <laughs> the the tall guy is just the sniveling, you know, uh, like greedy, you know, fucking Nukem type guy. Is he the, he's the attorney. Wait, is he the attorney in Jurassic Park? No. What else has he been in? He's no, he isn't the attorney in Jurassic Park. Now that I have a face on him, he's been in a bunch of stuff though. He was the the main judge in um or the like the school leader incentive of a woman, the blind okay. Al Pacino yeah, movie yeah, yeah, yeah. with Chris O'Donnell. He was like the uh, you know the oh rat on your friends and you know. But that's you get the other thing it. about that movie is a lot of those parts too are parts that all those actors have played in other things. You know, yeah. So you can easily plug in to yep. all those storylines because you've seen those storylines before, but now they're all just conglomerated together in this alien invasion movie. But it works, and that's and work. that's and that's why, like some of those other movies, I could care less about that they're in the same characters. But here you have, and I guess that's another credit to Independence Day is you have strongly defined characters. 
You know what I mean? Like if you stripped away, if you looked at that screenplay and you stripped away the character names from each line of dialogue, you could still understand that each character was different in some way, shape, or form. It's kind of incredible how well it's done because there's so little time given to every character. Mm-hmm. Um, I, because I watched that movie when I was in middle school, so yeah. I'm like, this is talking from the experience of like a middle school kid who was able to pick up everything right off the bat. Sure, there isn't any kind of confusion about where everybody is, and. It does have to do with it. I'm I'm trying to figure out where do the strength of those characters come from, right? That's a that seems like a script they spent a while on because with everything that's going on in it, somehow I never have a moment where I'm confused. Somehow mm-hmm. I never have a moment where these characters don't make sense. It all comes together. And I can't mechanically figure it out right now. I'm going to have to watch that movie again to like put that together because there aren't that movie should be impossible to do. <laughs> <laughs> when you really think about it, that movie should be impossible to, to make good because I've seen that exact same movie done terribly. And that would be the assumption is if you have this many characters, you have this many plot points this should not work out. I feel does. like that the, there is a way to, to break that down. And now you make me want to watch independence day to, to figure it out because that, that that's the mantra of Hollywood is that, Oh, we don't know what works. So we just try whatever. And if it works, it works. If, and then we run it into the ground and then we just wait until the new thing works. And yep. I don't believe that in a second. I, I believe that <laughs> there is a reason why things work. And it doesn't always come down to just having a great script. You can have a great script and a terrible director. And I've seen that plenty of times with everything. And I've been like, this is a really great script, really poorly directed. And you know what I mean? Most people don't, they just assign the overall uh, um, enjoyment or perception of the movie to the direction. And that's not at all like, yeah, I guess it all, it all gets hung on the, the director's neck, whether it's a Laurel or a noose. Uh, But the, the end result is not always like the director. The director is responsible for a lot of things, but there's other things that are out of a director's hands that they sure. are not responsible for. Really, it comes down to the executive producers, but that's neither here nor there. The point is, uh, there is magic in there, and I'm wondering, and there had to have been rewrites uh, when they first did Independence Day. There was no way. I was just watching a making of thing about um, uh, Back to the Future last night. And you look at that movie and it's fucking perfect. There is nothing you can find that is wrong with Back to the Future. Setups and payoffs galore. Uh, The only thing that was wrong, but they were talking about the script writing process and there's definite rewrites. The DeLorean wasn't a DeLorean to begin (laughs) with. They literally had the original Time Machine was a fridge. A refrigerator. I'm, I'm glad they kidding. went with the DeLorean. Yeah. Um, and like, but then they also, do you know this about Back to the Future that they shot basically the entire movie with another actor and then they went back and, and reshot the entire thing with Michael J. Fox? Whoa. I had no the, idea. The guy who played, so I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, uh, I believe shares in it as well, called Mask. About no. a person with a facial deformity. Oh, I know what movie you're talking about, but I haven't seen it. There's an actor that plays the, the main character in that film. Uh, his name is Eric Stoltz. And he was a very thespian-like actor. Like, he took the craft very seriously. 
And when he got on set and he was doing it, um, he didn't have the fun, exciting energy, that charming charisma that Michael J. Fox has. And he was all like, wow, I'm in the 1950s. What do I do? Like, as opposed to, whoa, whoa. Like the the Michael J. Yeah. Fox, you know, perspective of it, where it's just more fun. And they went through six weeks of filming with him and they took the dailies because they originally wanted Michael J. Fox. And they took the dailies back to the studio and they said, look, it's not working. Watch. And they did all that. And they were like, all right, fine. You want Michael J? You got Michael J, but you better make it work. Um, so they put Michael J in there and then the rest is history. But there were so many things about that that got changed. And the, like I was watching, not only did they change the actor, they changed the the time machine, but there was also like little things. Uh, Marty's girlfriend also got re- recast. Um, the costume design got rechanged during it. So Eric Stoltz, when he goes back in time, was wearing like a black uh, jacket, sweater type thing. Oh. And... When they went exactly, and then, but if you think about it, Marty's red vest and jeans underneath is iconic because it's he's super iconic. He's super eighties, like they defined his wardrobe by his decade. Whereas Eric Stoltz wore something much more neutral, so he could blend in and people wouldn't question him. And they realized we're missing comedy gold here of people like you know what's with the life preserver and this and that. So. <laughs> right. That kind of stuff was technically rewrite stuff because they reshot it with Michael J. Fox and they made that costume change. So it made it better. And yeah, that's the beauty. And that, I think that's like the living embodiment of a rewrite when they got to go back and reshoot the entire thing with a different actor. They had hindsight. So it was like, oh, now we can go back and we can get a different shot because already the, the editor was like, yeah, he, I, I was putting stuff together and I realized, boy, it would be nice if we had this shot. And by the time he found out they were doing the the reshoot, he was like, here, I have a list of shots that you could get, please, while you're getting this new Michael J. Fox footage. And they did. And it added so much to the movie. It was like little things here and there. But like the skateboard chase scene, um, when Michael J. like puts down on the skateboard and the sparks fly out from underneath it, little touches like that just started, you know, coming uh, apparent to them as they were reshooting it. So. When you look at it, the beauty of it, we talk about this all the time, setups and payoffs, they knew where the setups and payoffs were because they already had payoffs and they didn't realize they had the setups or vice versa. And they were like, that would be nice if this paid off now. <laughs> so they went back and they reshot it. So the way I look at it is when you're doing a rewrite, that's the the mindset you need to have when you're... So part of a big p- a part of a rewrite is rereading. You have to sit down... Yeah. And like hide your own pen or like disable your keyboard or something and just read and just look at what's in front of you and observe, not tweak, not change, not modify, not make notes, nothing like that. Read what's in front of you and then realize, because if you're doing the busy work of writing while you're rereading, your brain is not engaged with what's going on. You're not immersed in your own story. And you need to do that when you're rewriting. You need to reread first without touching it. And then you can start seeing things and that mind starts twirling where it's like, oh, that would be nice. That would be good. And, you know, the good ideas stick, the bad ones float away. But that's the beauty of it. You have to go into it visualizing what it is that you've written so that you, when you see it, you realize more problems, you realize more solutions, you realize things that enhance what you're trying to do, things that distract, 
right? Because, and that's the other thing too that we don't really talk about with rewrites is while we think we're writing in tunnel vision where we're so focused on executing one point, yeah. we tend to put in a lot of distracting shit that means nothing to yeah. the overall point. <laughs> and that's, that's one of the other things too. It's like, why is this here? I don't cut, delete, remove. And that's one of the things that people need to look for when they do a rewrite. I'm sorry. I just ranted for like 20 minutes. No, I love that. (laughs) I love that rant because I think you got, you got to the heart of this episode, which is, uh, fortifying the still of your story, basically. Yeah. You know, I don't, there's no other, I I think, I think you said it. No, well, we just came up on an hour. So, uh, that's perfect for me. Um, all right, so let's summarize. Yeah. In your opinion, for sure. redrafting, rewriting, what's the, the most important takeaway that you can suggest to our audience? When you're rewriting, remember what you're not just remembering why you made the story. You're also you're also looking for you're uncovering, basically, hmm. the things that pop up in the story as you're writing it. The things that you weren't aware of when you first wrote it, right? Theme is often, theme is usually the major thing for most people. Most people don't have a theme in the first draft and that's fine. You just, you have events, you have uh, some ideas, you have mostly scenes. That's where everybody starts off, right? I have a scene where I want this to take place. And you start stringing together those scenes and as you string together those scenes, themes starts to happen, payoffs and setups start to happen, or setups and payoffs. <laughs> you could probably do it the other way if you wanted to. But um, you're basically putting together, uh, your, I, I think the way you put it is you're stringing together everything so that you can, you can bring it home. The grocery bags. Yeah, Absolutely. the grocery bags. <laughs> uh, that would be kind of my thing is where, I think when you're doing a rewrite, you need to get gain perspective. And one of the things that yeah. you, you need to do as a storyteller, you need to get away from your own thing. And most of the time you're blatantly aware of what your problems are already. Yeah. If you've, you know what I mean? If you've already done the rewrite or the reread, um, but get away from it and watch and engage with other artists, other artists that are really good at what they're doing Observe what they are doing and realize how you can apply it to your work to solve problems where, for example, me, where I was agonizing over a seven minute exposition scene, um, I watched a fucking Scorsese movie and realized he just flipped the bird to the notion that a scene has to be two pages. And I'm like, (laughs) you know, people are going to say, well, what do you think you are? Fucking Martin Scorsese. And I'm sure when he was making this, you know, even though he had had hits at the time, he had Raging Bull and uh, several other films, Last Temptation of Christ, you know, all these kinds of movies. I'm sure people still said to him, what do you think you are, Orson Welles? Like, and I'm sure Scorsese had to say, no, fuck that. Like, I'm me. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I realized what I was doing with my particular instance was I was adhering myself to a studio mentality which is just hey this is what has worked and this is what you need to do versus what my story needs and that's where i realized i'm not being egotistical 
I am submitting to the demands of my story, my characters, what needs to happen here. So that was a great thing for me, but I had to learn that lesson by watching someone else's work and realize what they were doing and yeah. how it solved my problem. And then I no. also looked to Blake Snyder with the Pope in the pool thing. And I was like, Oh, here's one of the ways I can get around that. You know what I mean? And, and really not just be egotistical, but really kind of light a fire under that scene. So it still feels like it works. What were we going to ask? Oh, I was just, I really, I was just going to reconfirm what you're saying. It is all about shifting your perspective. It is about taking a bird's eye view on your project and really like zooming out. Yeah. Right. Yep. Because when you're in the middle of writing, you're in the moment and you're only looking at the page. You're looking at it one page at a time, and you need to zoom out to where you're looking at the whole document, if at all possible. Um, Which is, what are you going to say? I, I just want to throw out one last notion we, we haven't talked about, and you can feel free to, to add your two cents if you want after I've said it. But one of the things that people will typically do before they do a rewrite is that they will have someone else read their work and provide feedback. Yeah. And the one thing that I always tell people when they have this happen, especially when they ask me to reread their work. <laughs> yeah. My one little dollop of advice is always the same thing. Especially if you've given it to multiple people, right? Listen to where they are saying there are problems. Don't listen to any of their solutions. <laughs> sure. And that, well, and there's two reasons for that. One the, usually the, the suggestions are bad. They're pedestrian or cliche or, you know what I mean? Yeah. But also it's the other person, I don't want to say hijacking, but in a way they're hijacking your story idea or your sure. script or whatever it may be and making it their own and what they would want to see. And really this is yours. And while, yeah, you should try to make your audience happy at the end of the day, they want to feel fulfilled you still want to have your own personal fulfillment in your work. So let it be not, Oh, how they, how they would solve this problem. How would you solve that problem? Yeah. And that's the way to approach it. So I always say that to people. I'm like, listen, I'm going to give you the list of a problems. If you want, I will throw out my two cents on how I would fix them. And then you can take that idea and run or you can throw it away. But, I'm not going to freely offer that because I don't want to taint you or point you in a direction or whatever. Yeah. I'm going to be egotistical here, but most of the time they take my ideas and run with them. Um, <laughs> but, and, and that's just the thing where it's like, okay, well you took my idea, but I, that's good. And, yeah. and people, sometimes people even ask me, they're like, well, don't you feel bad if that, that actually hits, like they're going to get credit for your idea. I'm like, yeah, but then they're going to come back to me because they're going to realize that it wasn't their idea. And the ideas that are working were mine. So if I'm really that good, they're going to come back to me for more. And next time it's going to cost them. <laughs> like it's going to, you know what I mean? Like if it yeah. was good enough to, to be beneficial to them, well, they're going to pay for it next time. And that's just a business model that I go off of. But overall, I t tend to tell people, listen to the problems, ignore their solutions. And that's a rewrite rule that I follow a lot that's where a it's point. just, it's just about maintaining your own personal art, artistic identity Yep. In in the midst of w what you were talking about earlier, which is um, second guessing or uncertainty about what it is that you're executing. So, you know, nine times out of 10, people hate reading. So when, when if you give them a script, they're really pushing themselves to have to read it. Yep. So they might miss things that are right there, 
right there that answer their questions or solve their problems that aren't really problems. But so that's why I don't suggest following their solutions because they might've just misunderstood the problem to begin sure. with. Um, but yeah, I don't know if you have any two cents that you want to add on to that little nugget. Yeah. That's an interesting thing to bring up because I am, uh, simultaneously, I have been editing a story that my friend, my friend Austin's writing as part of a production that he's doing with somebody else. And I've done, I've done this with Austin a lot and we're both on the same level generally you know, we understand each other, what we're saying in regards to stuff. And so when I'm reading his stuff, I oftentimes bring up my, I tend to focus on, okay, here's what I think's wrong here. And I tend to be very vague about offering solutions. I try mm. to be as vague as possible because yep. I know he'll come up with something. Oh, okay. You know? I know that he'll come up with a solution to it. And he always has some interesting perspective that I'm not going to really, you know, figure out in the same way that he does, because it's his story. He's going to know better about how to deal with it. Amen. It was a little different with garage. <laughs> it was a little different with garage Raja when it's both of us a hundred percent involved in regards to he's writing and I'm drawing. Then, you know, we've talked about this before, but like I, I, I would add scenes and do stuff outside of the script without even talking to him. But that was a totally different situation when it's a hundred percent his, you know, his writing I want to let him figure that out as much as possible for himself and just point out like, you know, Oh, here's a pacing issue. Here's an issue. Here's a continuity issue, stuff like that. And then he can, you know, figure out where to go from there. And I do. And I think that too, because I mean, a, it's not my story. And then B, I think that it's important to give somebody that opportunity to solve that for themselves because then it's something that they can add to their tool belt as they write, you know, as yeah. they grow and learn as an artist. Because I'm just here as an assistant to that process. Sure. Ultimately, I'm just I, here as an alternative perspective. Because, I was like, oh, go ahead. The only, the last thing I was going to say, because the hardest thing about uh, writing is you never have the object, the objectivity of an alternate perspective into what you're making. And that's something that, you know, has haunted me in the past where I think to myself, oh, this looks great. But what what would somebody who's reading this who isn't me think? And like the closest thing I've ever gotten to that is like getting high and reading it. You know what I mean? Like totally altering my <laughs> mental space. So I'm reading it from, you know, a cockeyed angle. And yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, that's what this is like. You know, and it's not even really like that at all. It's just I'm reading it high. Um, so anyway, that's all I had to say in regards to that. I always found that the best reader critique feedback type person doesn't offer suggestions. They actually ask questions uh, to the creator. And that that is what I try to do. So like I'll ask somebody, you know, what was your intention here? What did you want me to understand from this character? And if they said... Well, I wanted you to be confused. I'd be like, oh, you did it. <laughs> and you know what I mean? Or yeah. you know what I mean? Like, oh, I wanted you to hate him. And I'd be like, oh, no, I fell in love with him when he said that. Like that, yeah. that those are the kinds of things that the discussions that people should be looking for when they're having those their their setups to rewrites. You know what I mean? When you're having yeah. that moment. So I, that's another thing. If you have someone that's giving you feedback before you enter a rewrite, you know, pick and choose your 
your critiquers as nitpicky as you can. You yeah, know what and I mean? there's there's definitely also um, a pitfall that can happen from having like a trusted uh, person who reads your stuff all the time because they get used to your work. Yeah, and you get used to their their response to your work, right? Yep. Um, I haven't found any good solutions to that. I mean, it's hard to find random people to just be like, "Will you read my story?" Yeah. <laughs> no, just... There's actually a, uh, someone told me about this a couple of years ago. I have never actually followed through on looking at it, but there's some kind of website where you can upload like a screenplay, and you can get feedback on it. But in order to have it posted somebody or you have to read like three different screenplays and post Mm. feedback on theirs before yours becomes publicly available for other people to. And that way the community thrives. Like a bunch of people have to comment before they can have their thing posted. Yeah. And you know what I mean? So it keeps that circle moving. I'll have to try and find out what that site was, but uh, that was like a good, like karma type wise. But again, you can't really talk to someone that you've never met through the internet and judge if they're a good judge of character. I, I get stuck with the worst type of feedback all the time, which is, this is great. Right. And I'm, that's not what I want if I was an amateur and I was very insecure about what I was doing, that's what I would be after. But when I'm like, you know what I mean? I I'm after the people that ask the questions who are like, what well, what was the point of this? Why does this happen? What were you going for? What are you trying to say? Like those kinds of people, like I will hold on to those people forever. Those are the kinds of things that I want. That way I can go into my rewrite going, okay, this, this execution for this idea is not working. And now I have to find another way to do it. And that's, that to me is the best way to go in. Anyway, I don't want to go long on this one. Uh, Rewrites are necessary. Rewrites are writing. Uh, I strongly advise you to go back and rewrite even just to fix your goddamn typos. Uh, <laughs> uh, unless you have any other last words, Mr. Rainwater, uh, I, I, I leave it to you to end All right. the episode. <laughs> That's it. We'll see you guys next week. Later. Later.